this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is still a revolutionary act in 2020. Well, welcome back, everybody. Uh, I know there was a little bit of a hiatus there, but since the holidays, the new year, it's been crazy. Very busy, but all good things. Glad to be back with the podcast. I know a lot of folks were sending me messages. Where When's Honestly Speaking coming back? Because so many crazy things have happened. So I heard you. We're back and ready to go. Uh, on this episode, um, I'm going to be bringing in my good friend and CNN colleague, Ellie Honig. You've probably seen him if you watch CNN. Um, he's one of our legal analysts, and he's been doing a great job breaking down the ins and outs of impeachment, the trial, how it works. So I know a lot of people don't really understand how the process works. It's very different than a criminal trial or the traditional trial, the way that we imagine it. So I thought Ellie would be a great person to bring on to start us off to talk a little bit more about what's going on and how to understand what's happening with what. So stay tuned for Ellie. It's a fun conversation. We're both from Jersey, so we're always, you know, referencing Jersey stuff and now us Jersey folks, we stick together. So stay tuned for Ellie Honig. What's well, a couple of uh, announcements coming up for me? If you guys follow me on social media, you'll you would have heard that I have been selected as one of six resident fellows for the Harvard Institute of Politics Resident Fellow Program. I am so excited. It all materialized really quickly. I found out a couple days before Christmas, the, the official announcement went out first week of January. So I had to keep it under wraps. But um, yeah, so uh, I get to spend a semester up at Harvard in Cambridge. And it's so beautiful up there. I, I've never spent a, um, a long amount of time there. I've visited over the years, but it's been a long time. But I've always enjoyed my time up in Boston in the Cambridge area. It's so nice. And the funny thing is that I've been saying throughout this crazy time with Donald Trump and politics and the party, and I keep telling my husband, man, what a cool time to be back in school. Like, I would love to be back in school. And I spoke it into existence. Um, as part of the fellow program, I, I lead a study group weekly on a topic of my choice and the topic I chose, which I came up with, and we, you won't be surprised at this, it's principal versus party. I think it's really important to get these students to understand that you really have to stand on principle. If you don't have a foundation by which you live your life, you're susceptible to going any way the wind blows and you end up with a situation like we have now where we have a demagogue in the, in the Oval Office deceiving, misleading, lying to the American people and so many people are falling for it because principles don't seem to matter anymore for lots of folks. And I want to I, I think that we need to call that out. So that's the topic of my study group, which will be for um, running from fe February, March and April up at Harvard. And I get an apartment there. So I will be doing the broadcast from the podcast. I mean, from Harvard um, for the next couple of months. And the hubby will be coming up, flying back and forth. I'll come home a couple of weekends, but I will be up there most of the time, which is going to be cool. I get to be part of the Harvard community. I'm so excited. I'm so grateful for this opportunity. I'm just thrilled. I can't wait. So Harvard, here I come. 
Another bit of uh, housekeeping to announce, I've also joined a new group called The Lincoln Project. Uh, I've joined them as a senior advisor. It is another group that was started by a bunch of fed up Republicans, some names that you will know, like George Conway, Rick Wilson, Mike Schmidt, John Weaver, um, high profile, never Trump Republicans who had enough and said, that's it. We are not going to sit back and not do everything we can to make sure we get this guy out of the White House. So the LincolnProject.us, if you want to see more, if you're interested in, in getting involved or donating to help the cause, we've already put out a couple of ads uh, attacking, I don't want to say attacking, but um, putting on notice, let's say, some of the wishy-washy Republicans who are um, up for re-election this year and who can make a difference in the Senate impeachment trial as far as voting for witnesses or voting to uh, remove or acquit Trump, like Susan Collins and Cory Gardner and those folks. Uh, We've put out a couple of the organization, the Lincoln Project's put out a couple of ads already, digital ads, and we've been raising money left and right because people are looking to get involved and do what they can to help make sure Donald Trump is a one-term president. So I'm also excited to um, be a part of that effort because... Like Elijah Cummings said, when we're dancing, dancing with the angels and you look back, you have to ask yourself, what did you do in 2019? And now we're in 2020 to save this, this great country of ours. And, uh, will you have been a part of it or would you be on the sidelines? I'm not trying to be on anybody's sidelines. It's too important. The soul of the nation's at stake and every opportunity I have to be active and involved to try to bring some sanity and some respectability back to not only the politics and Republican Party, but just to the political discourse. I mean, it's a mess. It really, really is. So the Lincoln Project, lincolnproject.us. If you want to get involved, check it out. Join the mailing group. That's, um, I mean, there's a mailing list you can sign up for as well. You can see some of the efforts that we're doing and and keep up with it. Um, That's in addition to um, my duties on the board of Stand Up Republic, which was one of the first organizations formed after Trump won. And, um, you know, we're still doing things to focus on preserving the institutions and democratic norms that Trump continues to attack. So it's been busy for me already. And we're only in the first couple of weeks of, of 2020, but uh, it's going to be a very interesting, eventful, impactful, purposeful year. And Hopefully, much a lot of people will, will get involved as well. Make sure you register to vote, folks. We're only a couple weeks away from the first votes being cast out in Iowa and New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, followed by Super Tuesday, March 3rd, where my state, where I live now, Virginia. You guys got to make sure you vote. Get your neighbors to vote. Make sure you're registered. Pay attention, please. It's... Um, because this is just too much. So that is that catching up on what's gone on. Um, so many huge stories in the news over the last couple of weeks. And I'm not going to go through them all. Just a couple that I, that I have some strong things to say <laughs> uh, before I get into my um, interview and conversation with, with Ellie Honig about impeachment and the trial going on now. So while we were away, 
I was in Jamaica for New Year's. If you guys follow me on Instagram, you saw the photos. It was beautiful. We had a great time. And while I'm in Jamaica, I'm getting, of course, alerts on my phone about what happened with the embassy in Iraq and then ultimately the the um, the uh, attack and then our response and, and this whole thing. And then next thing you know, we took out the Iranian captain Soleimani, or general, I'm sorry, Soleimani. And Soleimani was a bad guy, for sure. Horrible. He, he was responsible. He gets a, lo- a lot of blood, American blood on his hands over the years. And he deserved to die for sure. But there was a question about Trump's decision making and how he came to the decision to take Soleimani out at the time. And they told us it was because there was an imminent threat. Well, we have yet to hear what that imminent threat was. He never proved, they never produced the intel to prove it. And that's, so, you know, it caused all kinds of controversy and people arguing over it. And it's just another example of how reckless this administration is. You know, it puts at risk national security and stability in certain regions. Just, it's just, yeah, that's great. Soleimani's dead, but at what cost, you know? Uh, it's, uh, and these things matter. It matters to the organiz- to the governmental order. It matters to, to respecting our our constitutions and I mean, our constitutional institutional norms, you know, and Trump's just deciding, yeah, well, you know what, let's, let's, uh, we'll go bomb this guy and to hell with what the ramifications are. He was a bad guy. Let's bomb him. Like that's not how you conduct foreign policy. So the scrutiny that the administration received was warranted. And because we, the impeachment trial picked up in the Senate, we real that kind of, that's kind of gone away now. It's not really in the news anymore. But what did come up uh, were excerpts from a new book that I just bought this week, but I haven't started to read it yet because I'm preparing for my move up to um, Cambridge, but for for the Harvard thing, uh, a very stable genius written by Phil Rucker and Carol Phil Rucker and Carol Lenig of the Washington Post. And excerpts leaked a couple, I guess it was last week. And I was infuriated. It talked. It told a story about Donald Trump getting a, one of his first real briefings at the Pentagon in 2017, and how General Mattis and the Joint Chiefs and Gary Cohn, by the way, all these people are now gone. Um, how they were concerned that Trump really didn't know shit from Shinola about anything foreign policy, military, any of that, and they were concerned, and they had to figure out a way. How? how let's give him a crash course on geopolitics and what's happening. So let's just say it went really terribly. It went left very fast. Trump was defiant, ignorant, and demeaning. He called generals dopes and losers, said he wouldn't want to go to battle with them, that they didn't know how to win. I mean, horrible. And it's all in this book and excerpts from this were released in the Washington Post last week. And I was seeing red. How dare he? People in that room had a lot of medals on their chest. They'd seen combat. They'd seen their fellow soldiers die. I mean, these were real heroes in our military. And here's this silver spoon draft dodger, this, this, this uh, ignoramus charlatan coward but berating them oh 
I can't even. I just, it's infuriating. This guy does, is so unfit to be commander-in-chief. Um, I, I encourage you, if you don't want to read the whole book, um, just, just Google the Washington Post story and read the excerpt. You'll be infuriated. I mean, that, that alone is enough to, to want, want, want this guy out of there. Just, he claims to, you know, uses the troops as props anyway. And I've said this from, since the election, he just uses the troops as props. He has no respect for what they really do. He thinks that they're just a bunch of, of, uh, glorified warmongers that are for sale and, uh, who make him look tough and, and courageous, you know, big bad me, because look at me, I, these are my troops and our beautiful weapons and shut up. Oh, it's so dysfunctional. I can't. So I'm look for, looking forward to reading the rest of the book, though. It's one of the um, another insider account of what's going on. And it's just just when you think it can't get any worse, it does. It does. My God. Oh, my goodness. The books that are going to keep coming out about this administration, there's going to be libraries full of them. Which leads me to another one. John Bolton uh, over the break. Right. Bolton said, oh, yeah, I'll testify if I'm subpoenaed. Yeah. Listen, people, I don't think John Bolton will ever see a deposition room, maybe in closed doors, maybe, but you're not going to see John Bolton in front of the Senate testifying. He knows he has cover. If even if they do subpoena him, which so far the vote was voted down to subpoena him, but let's say that that's revisited and they strike a deal and he comes to, he's supposed to come testify. It's going to be very limited and the white house will invoke executive privilege. I just don't think that it's as important as Bolton's testimony is. And he has firsthand knowledge of some things. Don't hold your breath about Bolton testifying. I would not. It's already been shut down. The idea of Bolton for Hunter Biden, Chuck Schumer said, Nope, that's not happening. And nor should it, really. Hunter Biden has absolutely nothing to do with why Donald Trump is being impeached. Nothing. His work for Burisma, however you feel about it, was legal and has absolutely nothing to do with why Trump is being impeached other than Hunter and his father, former Vice President Joe Biden, were the targets of Trump's ire and part of the scheme. He wanted them investigated or he just wanted an announcement of their investigation so it would hurt Joe Biden politically. And Ukraine was like, no, we're not trying to get in the middle of American politics, but they needed their aid. So after a whole summer of not getting their aid, President Zelensky was about to relent and do it. He, was, he had the interview scheduled on CNN in September while he was at the UN General Assembly. But it was at that point, the whistleblower complaint went public and the administration got caught. Their scheme was about to be exposed, so they released the money. That's the that's how it went down. So it's ridiculous. This call for Hunter Biden or Joe Biden to testify. For what? He's a little do with this. So it's just a political ploy to distract from all the damning information that has come to light that came to that came forward during the House impeachment proceedings. And since then, there's been some new information even more information that's come that's come to light about Trump's behavior and people who had knowledge of it. Yet we've started this, the impeachment trial and 11 votes were taken 
all voting down party lines. Republicans voted not to allow Bolton, Mulvaney, Michael Duffy of OMB, and I think it was another um, aide. Um, the name's escaping me right now. Break, uh, what was the name? It's escaping me right now. But these folks, they don't want them. No, we're not going to subpoena them to come testify. Why wouldn't you? If it was such a perfect call, what do they have to hide? They also took votes to subpoena documents, some of the emails and documents and co- uh, conversations amongst these people about what was going on with the withholding of the aid. No, 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 we don't want any more. Head in the sand. <sighs> Insane. How do you have a trial with no witnesses? And and especially witnesses who have firsthand knowledge. What do you have to hide? I get into this with Ellie coming up in a few, and it's um, it's good. It's just it just defies common sense. It really does. Um, something else that came out that it, only because of of a FOIA uh, lawsuit. These emails from Michael Duffy, who is a political appointee in the Office of Management and Budget, right in the middle of the whole decision to withhold the aid, 90 minutes after the phone call between Trump and Zelensky, he sends an email, says, hold the aid, but let's keep it close to the vest. It's coming from the president. Oh, (laughs) that's just a coincidence? Come on. There was no legal justification for it. The GAO, which is the Government Accountability Office, they are a nonpartisan um, watchdog group that evaluates things in different parts of the government. And they give a ruling. And the GAO looked at this and said, yeah, the uh, withholding of that aid violated the 1974 Impoundment Act. It was illegal. Yep. Now, all of a sudden, not the GAO, they're in on it too, apparently. The GAO has always been a straight shooter, nonpartisan entity. They are, they're like the inspector general's office. So <laughs> now the GAO is part of the deep state, apparently. It's unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. Who else came forward? Lev Parnas. Good old Lev. If you guys are regular listeners of the podcast, you know that I dedicated an episode back in September to Lev Parnas, Igor Fruman, and Giuliani and their um, questionable behavior and what the hell Giuliani was doing with these guys and who they were and their ties to shady Russian oligarch money. And that was before they were indicted. So (laughs) I wasn't surprised when they were pulled off the, about to board a plane in Dallas airport, one-way tickets to Vienna, um, where their Russian oligarch financier lives, Dmitry Furtish. That's a whole nother story. Let me get into that again to remind people just of how just dirty all this is. But Lev Parnas is back and he did a media blitz last week with some pretty explosive documents and pictures and text messages to back up his story. It seemed as though our ambassador, Marie Ivanovich, remember her? The one that, that, that was pushed out by Giuliani. Yeah, it looks like she was being surveilled by some wackadoodle landscaper drunk guy named Richard Hyde in Connecticut. He's actually running for Congress, by the way. Um, it, we don't know if it was real. Were they really surveilling her? Was she actually in danger? I, it was extraordinary. It was something out of a B spy novel. But the point is, there was 
really a concerted effort to get rid of her because she she was in their way of their corrupt plans. So that gives a little bit more meaning to when Donald Trump in the transcript with that call on that call with Zelensky he said that she was going to go through some stuff. Hmm. I don't know. But that stuff needs to be investigated, you know, and the Ukrainians have opened up a, uh, an investigation. I still don't think Mike Pompeo has said a word. He's such a disgrace, that Pompeo. Another one. Unbelievable, though. Unbelievable. And you still have these Republican senators that that are willing to just die on this hill with Donald Trump. Uh, could you imagine if Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama did any of this, if any of this had been alleged? Good Lord. It just, it's, it's hard to fathom. It really is. But Trump and Giuliani are both distancing, distancing themselves from Lev. Who? Lev? Never heard of him. Meanwhile, there's pictures and videos, name tags of Lev Parnas sitting next to Trump at events. I mean, John Dowd was given permission to represent Lev Parnas when he first got arrested. John Dowd was one of the lawyers that represented Trump during the Mueller investigation. And an email revealed that Jay Sekulow, another one of Trump's current lawyers, defending him now, also during impeachment, said that the president signed off on it. But Trump doesn't know who he is. Nope, never heard of him. (laughs) Right. Just like he tried to minimize his relationship with Michael Cohen, too. Who? Michael? Oh, he did a couple legal things for me. That's it. Yeah, all right. He was your fixer for over a decade. (laughs) Unbelievable, this guy. So there's a lot going on. A lot going on. I just think the American people are overwhelmed, which is a shame. But you've got to keep paying attention. We just cannot sit back and let this kind of corruption go. You just can't. And I think um, the impeachment proceedings have been uh, interesting. Uh, I think Adam Schiff has done a fantastic job. I wrote for CNN.com that he gave a master class on Trump's corrupt solicitation of foreign, foreign interference with Ukraine. He did an amazing job in his opening arguments. The, the other impeachment managers are doing well, but Adam Schiff is the star of the show. He just has a natural knack as a former fo- prosecutor. He really knows how to tell the story. And they came with receipts, video and uh, video evidence, using Trump's wor- own words against him, replaying testimony from the House impeachment hearings. I mean, everybody worked. They were compelling witnesses. And, uh, you know, the American people, I wish they could pay attention to what's really going on and just how you would reach a conclusion that what Trump did wasn't impeachable is beyond me, but it's overwhelming, absolutely overwhelming. So I I just don't think it's going to make a difference. I really don't. Um, I don't know. It's, it gets disheartening, but you've got to do it. Historically, it needs to be done. There needs to be a record that people stood up against this. And I tell you right now, history is not going to be kind to these Republicans who have enabled this. We're just being so blatantly dishonest about everything. History's not going to be kind to them. So I know I won't be standing on the sidelines. I will not. And I'll be on the right side of history. And I'm sure many of you will, too. So I think that's a good thing. Good time to bring in um, Ellie Honig. Let's talk a little uh, Senate impeachment. Ellie Honig, CNN legal analyst, coming up next. 
it's been quite some time. The podcast took a little hiatus, so I had to think about who did I want to bring in to be the first guest of 2020, and who better than my friend and CNN colleague, legal analyst for CNN, Ellie Honig. Ellie, welcome back to Honestly Speaking with Tara. Happy 2020. Thanks, Tara. Thank you for having me. I have to ask you first, though, have you renamed the podcast? Because <laughs> a couple weeks ago, you and I spoke at a, at a legal panel in Philadelphia. We did. And one of our fellow panelists was Danny Savala, the outstanding legal analyst yes. for N- MSNBC. Now, Poor. Danny likes to disagree with people. Right. Um, but you made one point, and then the moderator, Smirkanish, cut over to Danny Savalos for his reaction, and Danny said, totally agree with Tara. And I said, ooh, <laughs> that's a good podcast name. Totally agree with Tara. You did. You did. And I laughed. I chuckled. And I said, yeah, but that's no fun when everyone always agrees with you, right? No, you're right. Right. Of course. Of course. But totally agree with Tara is, uh, I- I'll take it. Thank you. And and Danny, who I love to death, he was a former colleague over at CNN. He made the jump to MS and he's doing a great yeah. job over there. But Danny's always a fun time to have on panels because he does play the, the, the part of the contrarian. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. his role. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, where we're not seeing anybody playing the role of contrarian is in the impeachment trial going on right now. Um, When I left last left my listeners, uh, the impeachment had already taken place in the House. Uh, We were going into the Christmas break and everyone took a little bit of a breather. But one of my guests made a point about it was Tim Naftali who is um, another CNN colleague of ours. He's a presidential historian. He focuses on Nixon often. And he was making the point that the House should not stop investigating just because the impeachment proceedings were technically over in the House, but they should continue to investigate. All the relevant committees should keep moving forward because you never quite know what else could come up. And he used the, the Nixon case as an example, how other information came up um, when people thought it was over. So what, lo and behold, people like me who were skeptical about Nancy Pelosi holding on to the impeachment articles, I've been, uh, I've been made a believer because since then, before the Senate trial started, a bunch of new information came out that was pretty relevant, which made the argument by the Democrats to bring more witnesses into the, quote, trial in the Senate even more powerful. So we thought, but here we are now, the Senate trial is underway and it seems to the average person who's expecting a trial that this really isn't being conducted like a trial at all. Can you explain, Ellie, to those folks who are not legal scholars, who are not following this every day, what are the differences between the way the Senate trial is being uh, conducted and how most people think of a criminal trial? What's going on? So, Tara, if I had to answer your question in a word, it would be everything. Everything (laughs) is different. Um, The listeners should, when, when you hear the term trial, certain idea pops into your mind. People are thinking of maybe a trial they were involved in, they were a juror in, maybe they're thinking of a few good men or my cousin Vinny or law and order. (laughs) Those are normal criminal or sometimes civil trials that happen in our courts all over the country every day. This thing that's happening in the Senate right now is called a trial, but it really has almost nothing in common with a what I'll call a normal trial. Let me, let me run through the ways that they're, they're, it's different. First of all, 
your jury. The most important thing is your jury. A jury in a normal trial is 12 normal men and women from usually that community who are screened to to make sure that they will be impartial, that they don't favor one side or the other, that they don't have any preconceived notions. You throw people out if they have some sort of preconceived notion. Here, your, your jury, so to speak, is 100 senators, 53 of whom are Republicans and 47 of whom are Democrats or independents who caucus with Democrats. And whatever they've said publicly, and some senators have said straight up, I will not be impartial, including Mitch McConnell, mm-hmm. you can't throw them off. They are, they are the jury. They will decide the case. Another big difference. With a normal jury, they need to be unanimous. Unanimously guilty, unanimously not guilty. If they can't get to unanimity, it's called a hung jury and you do it again. Here, the standard is two-thirds. So 67 jurors, senators, need to vote to convict, which is a very high bar. It's very hard right. to get to. Um, no president has ever, of course, been convicted. A few other federal officials have been convicted on impeachment trial, judges, and thrown out of office. But it's a different bar. Um, the other – there are so many other big differences, but the other big one is just the fact that what regular trials are all about is – presenting evidence, evidence meaning witness testimony, documents, nowadays emails, texts. I mean, that's what trials are. You are you are gathering up all your evidence and giving it to the jury. And here, that is being done to an extent, but the big fight is about Will we call new witnesses? Will we will we go out there and go after new documents? There already is a a decently well-rounded body of evidence out there, which is what the House of Representatives used when it impeached. Those are all the hearings that we saw a couple months ago with Bill Taylor and Fiona Hill and Marie Ivanovich. Listeners will remember that. But Democrats are arguing we need more. We need the key stuff. We need the Bolton, Mulvaney, Pompeo. And Republicans right now are saying no. We have what we have, and even though this is called a trial, and even though trials are about evidence and finding truth, not here. So <laughs> not, that not is a, another huge difference. Right. Yep, not exactly. Today, not with these guys. Um, the other, the other issue I think it's important to point out is that there really are no rules set in stone other than a handful of things that were written into the constitution about the process of impeachment. So the rules going into this, the rules that are governing this process, where did they come from and who decides whether witnesses can come in or not? Because some people may have watched up until one in the morning, probably not many, (laughs) Um, this week when there were a bunch of votes on the Senate floor and it was about documents and witnesses and things were voted down. What, what, who sets those rules and what were they? What happened there? Yeah. So the real bottom line is the Senate itself sets the rules for the, for the most part. And the Senate's all about majority rule and the Republicans have the 53 votes right now. So really Mitch McConnell essentially sets the rules. Now you're right, Tara, in a normal trial, everything is essentially set in terms of procedure. We, When I was a prosecutor, I carried around a big, fat, thick book that had every statute, every law, every rule of evidence, every rule of procedure. You know exactly how it's going to go. The thing is, with, with a Senate impeachment trial, the Constitution only gives us about four or five things, and, and none of them are procedural. It just says Senate shall have the power to try. You need two-thirds, like we said, and, and the punishment is removal from office, and the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court presides. That's about it. That leaves a lot to the imagination. The Senate itself, though, has 
some rules, some rules. But again, they're pretty general, and they don't give us a prescription for how this goes. So Mitch McConnell, on the the night before this thing started, came out with his resolution saying, here's how we're going to do it. Uh, it got tweaked a little bit, but that whole long day into the night was about the, the bottom line. The most important point was McConnell's rules said, we're going to hear opening arguments from both sides. They're going to go, uh, they're going to get 24 hours each, and then we'll have questions, and then we'll vote on whether to hear from witnesses or not. And Democrats were furious with this. Chuck Schumer called it a national disgrace because they want to, A, they want to compel witnesses, and B, they wanted to do it up front. And so there was a long day of debate. And the only changes that were made to McConnell's proposal, the only ones he agreed to, were giving the parties three days instead of two days to, to spread out those 24 hours and agreeing that all the evidence that the House got, all that testimony I talked about before, Fiona Hill and Bill Taylor and Gordon Sondland, that all sort of automatically comes into play. So fairly minor revisions, but yeah, so now we're in this process where each side is going to get to stand up and, and make its argument for 24 hours over three days. We're going to have a series of questions from the senators through the chief justice to the parties, and then we're going to have the moment of truth, which is when – maybe literally the moment of truth, which is when the Senate will vote on will we be calling witnesses, will, be, will we be subpoenaing, meaning forcing documents to come from the White House. That will be the biggest moment. So just so people understand, the Senate, Mitch McConnell – can change these rules like they they had similar to the guidance about a president not being able to be indicted while in office. That's not a statute. Mm-hmm. That's just legal guidance right. from the Department of Justice that that people have decided that they're going to abide by it. But it's not codified mm-hmm. in stone here like a statute. Same thing right. with the rules that are governing this process from the from that they learned from Nixon. Well, they never really had a trial with Nixon. So Clinton, I guess, right. would be the, the most recent. And obviously, Andrew Johnson back in 1868, uh, I guess they could glean a little yep. bit from that. But Clinton being the most recent, they said that they were going to go by the Clinton rules. Are they following right. the Clinton rules? Because I was around during that. <clears throat> excuse me. I was around during that. And it doesn't seem like they're going with the Clinton rules. They're they're close, but there are differences. There are differences in the amount of time allotted. But the big difference is this question of witnesses, because in the Clinton case, they did call witnesses. They called three witnesses, Monica Lewinsky, Vernon Jordan, and Sidney Blumenthal. Mm -hmm. Now, they didn't testify in the well of the Senate. They reached this agreement where the witnesses would testify off-site, and they videotaped them, and then they played videotape excerpts on the floor. Um, And in fact, if you look back, there's been 15 impeachment trials total in our country's history, not, you know, impeachments for more than presidents. Judges are actually the most commonly impeached official over our history. And Adam Schiff, I think, or one of the House managers used a really impressive graphic that showed in every one of those 15 trials, there have been witnesses. I think Clinton with three witnesses was the lowest number. And I think 13 of the 15 trials had at least 10 witnesses. Right. So, The argument is, if we have no witnesses in this case, it will be the first impeachment trial in history with no witnesses. So that's a major departure. But like you said, Tara, in your question, what makes this tricky is we don't have that much precedent. We only have two prior presidential trials, and it's not binding. So if the U.S. Supreme Court issues a ruling, it is binding on all the other courts in the country. Everybody has to follow it, even if it's 20 years old. Sometimes precedent changes, but, um, but, but that's not the case with prior impeachments. You look to them, and it's important to say, how was it done in the past? But if Mitch McConnell wants to do it differently and he has the votes, he can do it differently. And I think what Mitch McConnell would tell you is, 
we get our power directly from the Constitution, which says the Senate shall have the sole power right. to try all impeachments. We are the Senate. We are the majority. We get to pick the rules. It's a double-edged sword there, and that's where the whole elections have consequences part comes in because, well, yep. Republicans are still in control. That's majority rule. Yep. They get the benefit of making the rules. Same thing in the House, though. As much as Republicans are carping yeah. about the way the House did things, well, they won. They get to set the rules. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, just before, because I want to ask you about this argument um, that the Republicans are putting forth about, well, we don't need these witnesses. What do we need them for? And all of the kind of hijinks they're going through to stop that. But before that, just to clarify one last point, what exactly is the role of the chief justice? Because I think people are looking to John Roberts and saying, okay, so when there's partisan bickering or something happens, um, does he jump in and say and make a ruling on that? What's the role of the chief justice? Because he asserted himself a he, little bit this week when there was yeah. some partisan bickering on the on uh, on the floor, which is not really allowed. Uh, but what is his role exactly? I don't. Are people going to see like a Judge Judy performance from him or what? <laughs> right. I think the short answer is no. <laughs> um, so look, a judge in a criminal case has a an immense amount of trial. Basically, any question about witnesses or evidence goes to the judge. The judge can say, yes, that's relevant. I'll let that in or no, it's not relevant or it violates some privilege or something. In the, in the Senate, the, historically, the chief justice has taken a passive role. Most famously, when Chief Justice William Rehnquist presided in the Clinton trial, he famously made a crack afterwards that I did nothing in particular and I did it very well. Yes. Um, and, and Chief Justice Roberts thus far seems to be going down that path. The only thing he's done was to admonish – uh, the parties for for breaching decorum when they got a little fiery. Um, at but one o'clock in the morning, at all... give him a break, you know. <laughs> yeah, gosh, what was the word he used? He used some really old timey word to admonish them. I got to look at. Yeah, <laughs> what is he? What is pedophagery? What does that even mean? <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, he seems to want to follow the Rehnquist model. Now, I think. In the sort of abstract legal sense, I actually think the chief justice would have the right and the ability to take a more active role if he wanted, because, again, let's talk Constitution. The Constitution says the chief justice shall preside. I mean, that's very broad. There's no qualification. And the the Senate's own rules actually say that the chief justice can decide evidentiary issues if he wants. And if I'm Chuck Schumer, by the way, and if I'm preparing to lose an evidentiary vote, Let's say my next move is then to say, very well, I've lost the vote 53 to 47. But Chief Justice, now I want you to rule. I request that you rule on this. Mm -hmm. Now, it's a little bit of a risk because Roberts may well say, no, the Senate has voted. I'm not going to rule. But I believe Chief Justice Roberts would be within his legal authority to say, very well, I preside. I will rule. Here's how I rule. Um, And now, look, that's going to be. Yeah, that'd be interesting. I I don't know that Schumer will go down that road. I don't know that Roberts, A, will rule or B, would rule against the will of the Senate and in Schumer's favor. So I I think the safest expectation, especially given what we've seen from Roberts so far, is expect him to remain more of a traffic cop than anything else. Just so because we brought up the pedophagor thing, um, I want to read the legal definition. And it's funny. Please do. Dictionary, it says archaic. It's an archaic word. Uh, The definition is an inferior legal practitioner, especially one who deals with petty cases or employs dubious practices. I would say that that in my in my opinion, that it describes the Trump legal defense team. But that's a whole nother story. Totally. You know, you know what that's you know what the equivalent of that word is in modern day New York, New Jersey practice. What? 
we we would say I wouldn't say he's I wouldn't say he's a pedophile. I would say he's a schlub. I think that's how we would describe that kind of word. Yeah, I think that's good. That's a good. Or for someone who's of disrepute, we would say a shkivats. That's another one. It's a shkivats. I don't know what that is. (laughs) Oh my god. Okay. So, all right. Now that we've kind of got some of the tech, the technical stuff out of the way, so people understand. Yes, you have opening arguments. You have some things that resemble what we think of as a trial, but it's not really a trial in the traditional sense. But some of the concepts like having bringing in witnesses in order to prove your case more, um, mm-hmm. that that is a concept that I think the average American thinks makes sense. I mean, polling has shown that 71 percent of Americans think, yeah, why wouldn't we have more witnesses if that's what we need to conduct sure. a trial? The polling is not in the favor of Republicans in the way they seem to be obstructing and delaying and covering up for the president, but yet they continue to do it because I guess they feel it's politically um, in the, uh, a smart thing for them to do because the evidence has been overwhelming, even without these yeah. firsthand fact witnesses, without Bolton, Mulvaney, Perry, um, the OMB official Duffy and a couple of others who it's interesting because the during the House proceedings, Republicans whined and bitched about how you didn't have any fact witnesses. They were just they were hearsay. It was hearsay, right. hearsay, hearsay. Nobody was actually there. Well, you're stopping the people who were actually there from coming to testify. And it's the same thing now. They're saying, oh, there's nothing new here. This is the same stuff we heard before. Well, there is new information, but you're not allowing these people to come and testify. You actually voted against it. It's it, it seems to me like they're playing both sides, both sides of the fence here. A hundred percent. I've had a couple of am I the crazy one kind of moments lately? The first one was, I think I was on set at CNN and there was this sort of, you know, animated discussion about should there be witnesses? And I was like, call me old fashioned here. But the, the question of should there be witnesses at a trial right. is, is a pretty easy one. It's like, should there be meat in a sandwich? Like, of course, that's what it is by right. definition. Right. Um. So, so that's number one. And number two, like you said, the very reason that we don't have these firsthand witnesses, the people who sat with Donald Trump and discussed this directly with him for the most part, is because the White House is blocking them. And it's completely disingenuous for Republicans to now say we don't want to hear from them. I mean, watch these senators almost literally run when they're asked that question. Like, how can you argue against hearing from these witnesses? I mean, it's so common sense. And like you said, 70, close to 70 percent of the public thinks that we should hear from these witnesses. And I think one of the democratic strategies here is to, as a term I've, I've learned from, from political professionals like you and others who I've met through CNN, is the concept of winning by losing. And I think if you're the Democrats, you're looking at this thinking like, are we going to get 67 votes and throw this guy out of office? No. And even if we do, Mike Pence takes over. Not, not Nancy Pelosi. It's not the way. Or Hillary Clinton, right? right. Um, but if we can make it painful for them, if we can make it hurt, and this is a winning issue, 70 percent of the people, I think it's high 40s, even percent of Republicans right. are saying we want to hear witnesses, then let the, yeah, let them stare down those poll numbers and, and vote no on witnesses and get the, and, and let the Cory Gardner's and the Lisa Murkowski's and Susan Collins's go back to their constituencies and explain why they didn't even want to see the witnesses. But look, the reason why they don't want to see it is so obvious. It's because they're afraid of the truth. I mean, there's a law here in New Jersey where I live, and you're, you're, I believe, a New Jersey uh, person. You know, probably. 
So we have a state law here that says if you get pulled over by the cops on suspicion of DUI and you refuse to blow into the breathalyzer, that in itself is a violation. You can get fined and license suspended for refusing to blow into the breathalyzer. And you know why? Because it's like Jersey common sense that sober people don't refuse to blow into the thing. Right. Only drunk people right. want to hide. You know, want to hide. And so the logic is the same. Like a, a child can understand it. If you say to a child, "Let me see what's in your pockets," I think you stole the cookies, and they say no. It's because they stole the cookies. <laughs> so let me I mean, ask you so, a good and that's question. Why, let me ask you a yeah, question about that. Um, one of uh, yeah. our, another legal analyst friend of mine um, from our Twitter, we have a Twitter chat group where a bunch of us chat. Yeah. And Joyce a um, Joyce Vance, yeah. who was a mm-hmm. former U.S. attorney down in Alabama, she does a lot of MSNBC. She brought up a, an interesting point. I wanted to ask you if this was true for you as well. She said yeah. that in her trials that she would ask the judge to give jury instructions to take into consideration um, any uh, any of the if the defense tries to withhold witnesses or for or witnesses refuse to cooperate that juries can take that refusal or that ability or that willingness to keep those witnesses from testifying into account as a potential negative mark toward the defendant. Does that right, right. So I know what she's talking about. Well, first of all, that that doesn't that does not apply to the defendant himself, right? That if every defendant has a Fifth Amendment right to not testify, and right. you're not allowed to stand up in front of a jury and say, "Ladies and gentlemen, the defendant here, Mr. Jones, did not testify." You know what that means, right? I mean, right? You can't do that. But there is something called an uncalled witness uh, presumption, basically, and it usually actually gets used against the prosecutors if there is a witness. And the defense can show that witness would have been relevant, but you, prosecutor, didn't call that witness, then the jury's allowed to basically assume the worst about what that witness would have said. So um, that's the same concept. It's people, people will call witnesses who help them, and they will try to block witnesses or facts that hurt them. And that's so obviously what's happening, what the Republicans are doing here, and, and to watch them sort of scramble and come up with a different lame explanation every day of why they don't want witnesses is really it's absurd yeah Uh, well i'm glad i'm glad that i was able to ask that because i heard i heard her say it on air and i was like oh that's interesting that that's an actual legal concept because i'm really sick and tired of these armchair lawyers people who don't know anything about the law who have never who aren't lawyers or or not have never been in a a proceeding or even a congressional hearing arguing with people who do know what's going on about uh, oh, well, that's hearsay or, well, that's not relevant or you can't infer that. And I'm like, obviously, yeah. you've never sat through a jury trial because that's what jurors right. are asked to do every day in this country. So there's yeah, and, a and standard this, that's not realistic for what happens every day. Yeah. And this this one is really sort of just common sense. Like people get that. People get right. the idea that if you're not calling somebody who you could, you can you can assume that's for a bad reason. Exactly. So to so the, yeah. the new talking point now seems to be after Adam Schiff gave a masterclass I, I wrote for CNN.com, yep. he, I felt as though his opening arguments were a masterclass in Trump's uh, solicitation of foreign influence with corrupt intent with this issue with Ukraine. I mean, he masterfully mm-hmm. presented yep. everything with um, anecdotes, with historical references, with documentation, with video evidence, using Trump's words, own words against him, using the witness testimony to put all the pieces together. And it's really hard for any 
intellectually honest person to sit there and watch that and say it was a perfect call. He did nothing wrong. No, they, they I know that there were Republican senators going, holy shit. Okay, how can we, how are we going to, to spin this? And the, the new line seems to be, this isn't new. We've heard this all before. There's nothing new here. And if, if their case was so solid, if it was so slam dunk, why do they need more evidence and new witnesses? What's the rebuttal? Yeah. So they're coming up with this artificial uh, rule that whatever evidence was existed and was public at the moment Nancy Pelosi brought down her gavel, I think it was on December 18th, and said, the article's passed, that's it, book's closed, have to judge based on that alone, can't judge on anything else. And they say it's like a grand jury in a criminal case. But they're wrong. That's not the way it works. It, first of all, there's no law on that. They're just saying it. Second of all, if you want to look at grand jury, here's, here's the deal. When you're a prosecutor and you have enough evidence to indict, you feel like you have enough, you bring it to a grand jury and the grand jury indicts. But you don't stop your investigation, right. and it doesn't mean you can't get any you, – you keep on investigating. We would investigate up until the minute trial started. We would investigate during trial. You investigated right up until the minute the jury took the case, and it would happen that you would find – certainly you'd find all sorts of new evidence after the grand jury indicted. And you'd find evidence during trial. I had cases where I found great pieces of evidence right smack in the middle of trial. It's all in play. And so the Republicans are trying to create this sort of artificial barrier to explain what they're trying to do here. But it doesn't stand up legally, and it doesn't stand up to common sense either. But but they're casting about, and, and they need some sort of reason why they don't want witnesses other than the obvious that I think anyone can tell. Right. And even further, you can you can do something called superseding indictments where you can yeah. add charges even after they've been charged. So, absolutely. You know, th- what about that part? Republicans, you know, they invoke certain right. criminal law elements when it's convenient for them and then they disregard others when it's not. And it's it's so frustrating. Yeah. But the average person, they don't know. So that's yeah. why we do yeah. what we're doing now to help educate people so that when they hear the bullshit, they can call it <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of bullshits, Absolutely. this is a good segue yeah. into Alan Dershowitz. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, former Harvard professor and very famous criminal defense attorney, Alan Dershowitz, um, famous and infamous, depending on how you feel about him, he has mm-hmm. really um, weaseled his way into this whole Trump <sighs> impeachment stuff. And Alan Dershowitz. You know, he's known for taking on controversial cases and representing not so popular folks like OJ and having affiliations with Jeffrey Epstein and others. Uh, but that yep. doesn't take away from the fact that people claim that he's a brilliant legal mind when it comes to criminal defense stuff. Apparently, he was a professor at Harvard, so I guess he's smart. Nowadays, <laughs> he has he's really making a mockery of his legacy here and um by taking the position that abuse of power is not an impeachable offense, despite claiming oh, and saying that you have to commit an actual crime in order to be impeached. Despite the fact in 1998, he said the total opposite during the Clinton impeachment, that you didn't have to commit a crime. Despite all of the legal writings on this, including even back to Hamilton, where he said if it's a violation of the public trust, um, it can be impeachable. But an impeachable offense is what the House of Representatives determines it to be. But Alan Dershowitz is hell bent on claiming that now 
as he said on Anderson Cooper's show, he's more right than he was in 1998, which is a yeah. piece of lawyerly language there. Uh, what do you say that what Alan Dershowitz's argument is? He's going to present this on the Senate floor for Trump's defense, and Republicans are jumping on this saying, ah, oh, abuse of power. No, that's not impeachable. It's got to be a crime. This isn't a crime. Alan Dershowitz's arguments are just a total mess. I, I have to say, this is not just a backdoor way to, 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 to say that I went to Harvard Law School, but I went to Harvard Law School, and he, he was a professor there, and you would have to get you would have to win a lottery literally to get his class you had right, to put in and they, they only had 20 openings or whatever and i put in for it every semester and i never got his class and i was disappointed then but i'm i'm thrilled now because <laughs> because i mean his legal opinions and analysis are just completely ridiculous at this point he contradicts himself routinely he's trying he knows he has to know this whole argument that you have to have a crime in order to impeach is complete nonsense every our, our history our precedent all go against that he himself said something different in 98 now he tries to create this distinction of what's criminal like conduct and i'm more right now than i was i mean it all just boils down Dershowitz's position just boils down to whatever i happen to say today that serves me best today is the rule and he has no consistency no intellectual consistency um, he's all over the map. But let me just be clear sort of for the listeners here. You do not need a crime in order to impeach. You can impeach for abuse of power. And I'll give you a couple specifics. First of all, if you look at our prior impeachment, all, federal officials have been impeached by Congress for things like intoxication and favoritism and tyranny or something like that. I mean, things that are not good, but they're definitely not crimes. And on the flip side, you have to be able to impeach for things that aren't crimes. I mean, there, there, there's so many examples out there, but the one, the one that I like is, let's say a president got elected and then just said a couple days in after his swearing in, I'm not doing this job. I'm going to, I'm going to lock myself in the West Wing. I'm going to watch TV all day and I'm not going to do my job. I'm not going to sign. I know there there may be some similarities here, but you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sign bills. I'm not going to conduct foreign policy. I'm not going to, I'm not going to execute my job as commander in chief. Nothing. I'm just going to sit here and watch TV all day for four years. You'd have to throw that person out. You'd have to impeach that person, right? Not a crime. So, right. Dershowitz has to know that he's wrong, but he'll say whatever he needs to say, I guess. Okay, what about the people who say, yes, but the Constitution says it has to be high crimes, misdemeanors, bribery or treason. um, Right. And if it's not one of those things, that it doesn't rise to the level of impeachment, which is what a lot of these Republican senators have been saying in their more recent media interviews to try to throw people off. Because it's easy for the average person to understand the concept. Well, this is what it says in the Constitution, bribery, treason, Mm -hmm. high crimes and misdemeanors. But the the high crimes and misdemeanors part of this is something that – is lost on a lot of folks because it's, you know, old, old English law, common yeah. law, um, that meant yeah. something different at the time when it was written. So it, can yeah. you explain that please? Why, you know, yeah. why this, it has to be bribery, treason, or some crime is not true. So that, that phrase treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors is, is one of the most misunderstood, hotly debated phrases. It's caused so much confusion over the years. And look, on its face, it does sound like it says crimes, right? Treason's a crime, bribery's a crime, high crimes, sounds like crimes, misdemeanors is a type of crime. But it, it, the problem is it was, it was pulled from 
1700s British parliamentary practice. Of course, our, our, the, the framers of the Constitution, that's what they were looking at. Right. That's where they came from. And if you look at that phrase, it didn't mean what it means now. It basically meant violations of the public trust, abuses of office under British parliamentary practice. The British parliament impeached officials for non-criminal conduct all the time. Plus, you have our own established history. So it doesn't mean it, it doesn't simply mean crimes only. Now, that said, look, it's a it's a at least an intellectually honest argument to, to say what some people said in the Clinton case, which is this is wrong, maybe even criminal. But it doesn't rise to the level of seriousness requiring impeachment. Now, I think that's a very hard argument, maybe impossible argument to make, given the facts of what Trump did here. But at least at least there's some principle to it. And I, I will say this also. There is a legitimate criticism or second guessing of House Democrats. Why not include some crimes in there, bribery. I think based on having been a federal prosecutor, I think you absolutely could have included some combination of bribery, extortion, right, extortion. or seeking seeking for an election aid. Yeah. Why not throw it in there either? Is I mean, still have an abuse of power article, sure. But why not have another article saying bribery, another article saying extortion, or even like obstruction. I mean, even the obstruction of justice. They did obstruction yeah. of Congress, but Right. There, you know, the right. Mueller report was clear obstruction of frickin justice. And well, right. You know, right. And they, they left out the Mueller. Right. And the problem is it's open. That, first of all, I think they could have done it. I think they didn't want to get pulled into a debate about the elements of a crime. And, yeah. and they didn't want to raise the bar for themselves. I get that. But the, but the cost of that has been opening up this talking point, a the false talking point of you have to have a crime in order to impeach. Mm-hmm. But B, I think that the, the more atmospheric talking point, which is which is a fair one, which is, as Trump put it, this is impeachment light. And he's the first president ever to be impeached only on non-criminal allegations, which is true. I mean, Clinton had a combination of criminal allegations, right, perjury, perjury, and obstruction of justice. Yeah. yeah. And Andrew Johnson also had some articles alleged crimes and some alleged just non-criminal abuse of power. So it, it's I wonder if they could go back and do it again, if they would have thrown in you know, 1A, you know, Article 1, abuse of power, Ukraine, 1A, bribery, 1B, extortion, yes. 1C, foreign election. It makes me something. wonder so. what those discussions were, because it's not like they yeah. were on a lot of smart people on that side. And there had to oh, be, yeah. I would like, I, I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall for that discussion. Because yeah, yeah, so, someday I'm up. sure we'll hear. Yeah, someone's yeah. going to write a book about it, and we'll, we'll find out what, what the thought process was for why they yeah. didn't include it and whether they regret it. Because I, I think you're right about right. that. It handed, just like I, it, yeah, it handed a talking point and an annoying one to the Republicans <laughs> because it's yeah. like, oh, because the average person, the average voter is like, well, if it's not a crime, then it's not impeachable. And it's like, it doesn't work like yeah. that. Um, so yep. You constantly have yep. to explain it. It's an extra step of explaining and people turn, they turn off at that point. They're like, not a crime. So why is he impeached? And it's like, oh, exactly. Okay. So exactly. it's like, yep. I think it was a mistake by Nancy Pelosi to not include Justin Amash as an impeachment manager, even if he played a limited role to just do the constitutional um, ramifications of what's going on, it would have it would have still caught the attention, may not have moved the needle too much, but it still would have caught the attention of enough Republicans and people to say, even this guy switched parties, left the Republican Party because he was so disgusted by what was happening and believed strongly in the Constitution, he's participating in this. And, you know, yeah. I don't know what the discussions were there, whether he was offered, he turned it down, I don't know. But I just think that she should have included him. She could have. 
it would have been interesting because it would have reminded everybody there is a, a small, at least, bipartisan piece of this, right? right? One of Trump's big talking points is no Republicans have gone for this. It's like, how about the guy who left the whole party over right. this? Like, doesn't he count? <laughs> yeah. I mean, right. Does, right. That, does that not count? I I'm working on getting yeah. uh, Representative Amash on, on the podcast sometime in the next couple of oh. weeks. I hope, he get, I hope it works out because uh, it, it would be That'd a very be interesting. conversation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I suspect it would have been politically difficult for her to give it to him, though, because a lot – I mean, I'm sure dozens of House Democrats wanted to be named managers, and she smartly kept the team small with seven. I mean, in the Clinton case, there were 13 House managers. Yeah. That's too many. That's and and seven was smart. And I think it would be hard to justify just politically, internally, in terms of caucus management, giving it to – a newcomer to Congress and a brand newcomer to, to the Democratic Party when you have, you know, a lot of good people got passed over who I'm sure wanted to do it. I'm sure Eric Swalwell and I'm yeah. sure Jamie uh, uh, many other. Cipollini. Yeah. Um, what's it? Yeah. Cipollini. Uh, Pramila Jayapal did yeah. a great job in the committees. I mean, a lot of people who've been there a lot longer got passed over. So I think it would have been tough. Yeah, I, I guess you're right about that. It's just, yeah. you know, me, of course, being the, the Republican selfishly wanted someone to represent our viewpoint on this there. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, just <laughs> Amash would have been good at this. Um, so I, I want to talk a little bit more about um, or move on actually to a different subject mm-hmm. before we do. Bottom line for people, because this is going to go on for a couple more weeks. What mm-hmm. should people be paying attention to as this process unfolds? Yeah. So two big things. Number one is going to be this vote on witnesses, this vote on evidence. Uh, that's going to be the moment of truth. Are we going to see more witnesses here, or is it going to be a complete shutdown? And I think if the Republicans do engineer a complete shutdown, then that will be a stain on Mitch McConnell and I think that really this whole process. Um, so that's number one. And number two is I'm really curious to see, like, what exactly is the Republican defense going to be? Because as you said, as we've seen this case laid out by Adam Schiff and his team, it's it is really strong. And I say that from a prosecutor's perspective. Now, granted, in real trials, you don't have three days uninterrupted to present your case. It's more of a back and forth where you examine a witness, then the defense cross-examines, then you score some points, and then the defense scores some of its points. Here, it's all at once for, for, for the House managers, then all at once for the Trump team. But what are they going to offer up as defense? And will it just be the same fire and brimstone and witch hunt and nonsense? Or are they going to try to come up with some actual, factual, logical defense? Really? I haven't really. Good I'm, luck. I know, with that. I know. We've seen, I've they've seen telegraphed what they're going to do. And look at yeah. what they put on the defense team. This isn't exactly <laughs> a dream team here of legal defense. It's a good point. You know, they're Fox News people and Pam it's a good Bondi, point. for God's sakes. I mean, they're... she was horrible. Oh, she, horrible. she spoke the other day. She, she was. I, I mean, I, I gave her the benefit of doubt. I've never seen her in action before, oh. but she was attorney general of Florida, Florida. for almost a decade. Mm-hmm. And, and I figured, look, attorney general is a serious position. She must be a serious person. She must be talented. Oh, my goodness. What She was atrocious. Her articles were were. Her, her arguments were nonsensical. She delivered them with, with really this amateurish approach. She was snide, and it was bad. Well, that's about right. I mean, that's all. That's everyone. You have to be cut from a certain cloth to defend Donald Trump and what he does. And we've just yeah. seen this over and over again. He doesn't exactly get the best people. 
Okay. And by the way, Seculo, Seculo is not much better, and, and Cipollone is okay, but Cipollone has a little bit of a problem with the truth as well. He, he yes. got caught in a couple a couple uh, fibs. Just to, just so the audience knows what we're talking about, the president, the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, during the arguments over whether to allow witnesses and documents in, which happened the first day, because some people yeah. were confused. They were like, wait, I thought all opening arguments happened already. No, it was the first day <laughs> they decided to, to argue over should we allow witnesses and documents in before opening arguments. And during that right. debate, that's what went to like two in the morning. And during that debate, the White House counsel blatantly lied to the American people from the well of the Senate when he claimed that no Republicans were allowed in during the House impeachment proceedings, when they were dep- when they were uh, deposing witnesses down in the skiff. They, um, by the way, which is exactly what Republicans did during Benghazi and other times uh, under the Obama administration, they did not deviate from what Republicans did. And it was absolutely untrue. Republicans who yep. were on the committees were allowed into those depositions and they were allowed to question witnesses and many of them did. And the White House yep. counsel flat out lied about this. And, you yeah. know, it just makes you wonder if they lie about things this easily provable, <laughs> like what what else are they lying about? It, it boggles the mind the way that people, and, and- these people, go, the lengths they'll go to to deceive the American people. It's one of the things you're taught as a prosecutor is your credibility is everything. And if you misstate something, and certainly intentionally, but even unintentionally, and you, I mean, then why is a jury or a judge going to believe you at any point from then on? So that, it was a big mistake. By and that. he would never get away with that in a real trial. No. He'd be in big right. trouble. I mean, because it was deliberate. Yeah. It wasn't a slip of the tongue. It wasn't like, oh, it was 50%, yeah. but it was actually 47%. No, this was a calculated lie and something that the Republicans have been putting forth from the very beginning to just try to confuse people to make it seem like the process wasn't fair. The process was absolutely yep. fair, and it's the it's Trump and his minions who have decided to pervert it and then turn around and claim victims. So that's just yep. one example yep. of, of the shoddy legal work that's been going on. But Trump can't get any decent lawyers because who the hell wants to work for that guy? I get it. <laughs> um, well, speaking of people who who the hell wants to work for that guy, Lev Parnas, speaking of uh, characters. So yeah. for people who don't know, Ellie's been on the program before, but if you don't know, this is your first time listening to him. A, I love him because he's from Jersey and we connect on that bar. <laughs> but B, Ellie's a badass former prosecutor. As you heard, he went to Harvard Law School and I'll be up there at Harvard coming this semester. I'm so excited as a... Kennedy fellow. Thank you very much. Um, but I didn't, I didn't get, I'm not smarty pants enough to go to Harvard law school, but you were, and you also were a badass prosecutor over there for the Southern district of New York. And you prosecuted some pretty bad dudes, mob, mm-hmm. mob guys, all kinds, you know, you know, serious stuff over there at SDNY. So people know that the, the reputation of the Southern district precedes itself. And Rudy, watching Rudy Giuliani, who used to be the U.S. attorney there, he rose to the mayor of New York from there and became Rudy Giuliani, starting off in that office. Now the Southern District is prosecuting this case against Rudy Giuliani's buddies, uh, Igor Fruman and Lev Parnas. 
I did a podcast back in September talking about these guys before they were indicted. So I was prescient in that because once I found out Mm -hmm. who they were and some of the shenanigans they were up to, I'm like, these guys are up to no good. All kinds of shady business shit. What is Giuliani doing running around them? Why? What are they doing in Ukraine? So I encourage people to go back and listen to that episode. Um, But now they've been arrested. They're indicted. They're indicted, right? Um, Yep. Partisan Furman. Yep. Right. Parnas and Fruman, and Lev Parnas was begging the SDNY to, I guess, enter into some kind of cooperation agreement or to talk to him because he was willing to talk. And he did. A couple weeks ago, he went and did a media blitz and released documents and text messages. And this was before this impeachment trial started. And everyone went, whoa, this guy Mm -hmm. has a lot to say. What is going mm-hmm. on with his situation with SDNY? It smells a little funny that they're not engaging him the way you would think they would, given the amount of information he's privy to. Yeah, so this brings me back to my SDNY days. And like you said, I did mafia cases. I did organized crime cases. And Lev Parnas, I was laughing with some of my other former colleagues, he he, he reminds me of basically every every lower-level guy in a big organized crime case – who wants to come in and cooperate. And cooperators are tricky because on the one hand, they're indicted. And the reason they want to cooperate is not because they're altruists or patriots. It's because they want to help themselves. They, they want, want to get their asses. <laughs> of course. <laughs> right. of, absolutely. And by the way, if you chart out who gets the best sentences, it's cooperators by a mile. On the other hand, they have incentives now to give up the, the truth on other people. And what you need to do as a prosecutor, when you have someone like this who's interested in cooperating, you always want to hear them out. But the big question is, do I believe this person and can I back up this person? And the first thing you do is you tell the lawyer and experienced lawyers know this and you tell the cooperator, don't even bother going down this road unless you are willing to give me everything you know about every crime or wrong act you have committed and everyone and anyone else has committed, whether they're powerful or not, whether you want to give them up or not. And if you think you're going to come in here and minimize or hide something from me about yourself or somebody else, it's not going to work. It's going to blow up on you. So here's my read on what happened with Lev Parnas. And just one one quick thing, one quick thing. Lev Parnas is indicted on a campaign violation, a campaign finance violation. Nothing to do with what's going on in Ukraine right now. Uh, It may lead to that, but that's what he got indicted for. Him and his partner, Igor Fruman, they've been funneling money from potentially a foreign, allegedly from foreign um, sources into Republican political campaigns like Donald Trump's reelection effort and some other members of Congress, which is against the law. So the question yes. is, well, where is this money coming from? Like, who's paying Rudy Giuliani? And they're tied up with some some shady Russian oligarchs who are under indictment by the United States. So they're kind of tied up in some ugly stuff over there with Russian oligarchs and and things. But the but the reason they're under indictment now is nothing to do with Ukraine directly. It has to do with the campaign finance. So go ahead. Right funneling hundreds of thousands of dollars of money from Ukraine into these pro-Trump right. groups, but not the whole shakedown of Zelensky. That's, right. that's separate. They're in the middle so, of that, but that's not what they're in trouble for yet. <laughs> right. I mean, it, we now know that Parnas was involved in that. So Parnas, it seems to me, wanted to cooperate with the Southern District of New York. I mean, his lawyers made clear that he's eager to cooperate. However, from all indications I've seen, it looks like he tried to cooperate, but the Southern District didn't like him or wasn't satisfied with him for a couple of reasons. And I'll tell, I'll tell you why. 
back in December, the Southern District tried to get his bail taken away, meaning lock him up pending trial, because it turned out there was this million dollars that was sitting in some bank account that he had that he either lied about or hid from them. And it turns out that the source of that million dollars allegedly was was uh, a Russian oligarch. Uh, I think it was Dmitry Furkash. Yep. Yeah. Who's a, who's a really bad guy. And the Southern District then said, Judge, we now want to take his bail away and get him locked up. That is a dramatic move. And it, it is it basically tells me that if he was cooperating, he blew it or the Southern District basically cut cut the cord on him. So that's number one. Number two is the very fact that he went out and did this publicity blitz where he talked to Rachel Maddow and he talked to Anderson Cooper. Um, if, if someone was in the process of cooperating, you would tell the lawyer, look, I can't legally stop you from doing this. But if he goes out there and does a tour, it's over. We're not cooperating him because as a prosecutor, you need to get the information first. You can't have it out there in the public. You need to follow up on it. You can't have people be tipped off. So he's definitely not cooperating with the SDNY now, now that he's gone on this blitz. Um, did he want to? It sounds like he wanted to. But here's what I think he's trying to do. I think he's trying to get credit from the judge for cooperating, at least with Congress, with the House and with the Senate, because for whatever reason, it didn't work out with the SDNY. And I think his, his, his lawyer is trying to make the best of it and at least get him partial credit for cooperating with Congress. It's not full credit because he didn't cooperate with prosecutors, which is really the most important thing. But I think he wants to be able to go in front of the judge at sentencing and say, look, it didn't work out with the SDNY. They, they think he hid stuff. We probably have some other explanation for it. But he did cooperate with Congress and the Senate, so he should get some credit. That's my read on what's happening with him with the SDNY. Now, there's theories out there of did Bill Barr weigh in and did Bill Barr basically prevent the cooperation in order to protect people? I don't know. I mean, look, I'm very skeptical and cynical of Bill Barr. I think he's, I think he's absolutely political in everything he does. I I think he lacks credibility, but um, I also do see some of the common normal indicators of cooperation falling apart and not working out. I mean, hiding of money is one of the most common things. Someone comes in to cooperate. They tell you one of the things you always ask them is where's your money? What do you have? And it's quite common for these guys to lie and try to have money in a separate account or buried under their ants, uh, you know, in the ants' backyard that they want to hold on to. So I can see it. I can see it both ways. But for now, I'll go with what's what the publicly available evidence and think it was just your normal cooperator falling apart scenario. I mean, look, Barr allowed them to indict Parnas in the first place, so um, so he didn't kill that indictment. Although. It is possible he's willing. He was willing to let that happen, but not to let it go farther. So I don't know. I get there's more that we have to learn about that. Yeah, that's that's going to be very fascinating because of his proximity to Giuliani, and yep. he was really in the middle of a lot of this everywhere with Giuliani every day. And I always say yep. to people, "Hell hath no fury like a fanboy scorned." Because when you have people that worship that, you know, they, they worship the principal or, you know, the, they, he thought he yeah. was doing this for the president. He was a, you know, and, and you just, you could just see that he was this low level guy that wanted to have these delusions of grandeur. And then now he's scorned because they're claiming they don't know him. Trump's yeah. famous thing. I don't know this guy. Yeah, but yet your yeah. former you gave your former attorney the green light to represent him, John Dowd. But you don't know who he is. And we also <laughs> right. Saw docu- right? But we saw documents between Jay Sekulow and others that sh- that said that the president said it's okay for Dowd to represent him, but he doesn't know it. Yeah, every, 
everybody forgets who he is, Devin Nunez, right. whoever. But I, I love that that phrase of fanboy scorned. I mean, the best cooperators I had, some of the some of the best cooperators I ever had in the mob setting were fanboy scorned, yes. were guys who loved the life, who right. were so into it. And then they got arrested, usually for murder, and they were looking at a life sentence, and they just said, or, or, you know, but the best ones were the ones who had basically gotten drummed out of the family or the ones who had gotten turned on by the family. Those right. that, those were the me? ones you would right. go try to flip. Every, yeah. After everything yeah. I've done for you, you turn your back on me now? Well, guess what? Now yeah. I'm spilling the beans. But <laughs> let me say, though, from a prosecutor's point of view, and if you're looking at a Lev Parnas, you have to be careful of that because sometimes fanboys score and try to strike back a little harder, right? And sometimes, and you have to make sure they're not embellishing or throwing in a little extra vigor just to like really hurt the guy. And so I, I would always tell my cooperators, look, whatever happened between you and your former boss, it's not personal anymore. And I want you to tell me only the truth and do not, you know, do not exaggerate. Do not turn up the volume. You just tell me exactly what happened for better or for worse. So you need to be a little mindful of that when you're looking at the fanboy score. They're not just sort of, you know, being vengeful. But he's coming with receipts. And I think that documents he don't lie, right? Yeah. That, that's and that's why. the most important point. Right. Yeah. You know, when you're right. looking at the cooperator, the biggest question is how, how backed up is he? Right. How, how much can I believe what he says? And a lot, not all, but a lot of what Lev Parna says is backed up. Same thing happened with Michael Cohen. Same situation. Yeah, it's very Michael Cohen-like. Yeah, very similar. Same situation yep. where that person then starts to become a sympathetic figure because they yep. have self-reflection and they go, you know what? I thought that I was a part of this. He made me feel a certain way. And, and now yep. I look back and I've, I've thrown my life away for what? And then people yeah. feel sympathetic and you feel they, they look at you more credibly and then you have a problem. Right. Usually. So, yep. No, uh, I'll be, I'll it's be, a very common scenario. Yeah. Did you find yeah. Parnas credible? Did you watch any of his interviews? I did to 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 for the most part. Oh, I mean, uh, to me, anything that he can that that can be backed up with those documents, with those texts, with those handwritten notes, I found credible. And generally speaking, I found what he said to be credible. Where where I would have had an issue, or or, or at least required more, is some of the things he said were very general, and he didn't explain. Like he right. said, "Well, Bill Barr, who again I'm not a fan of," he said, "Well, William Barr was on the team." I mean, I would want to know. Well, what do you mean by that? What do you right. base that on? How? Right. How specifically do you know that? Are you, is that just based on something you kind of sensed and understood? Or were you like, on the other hand, at a meeting with Bill Barr or something, which right. I doubt was the case. Um, so uh, I think the thing with Lev Parnas is most of what he knows either comes through Rudy, um, and which is an un- unreliable narrator, or or comes from his basic common sense understanding of what was out there in the atmosphere. Um, and so I would want to drill down a little more on specifics before I fully cast my lot with him. But generally speaking, I found them to be, to be uh, credible for the most part. How much trouble is Rudy Giuliani in? I don't know. That is such an interesting question. I mean, I ask that sometimes of audiences and it's like 50, 50 split. I mean, look, I think he committed crimes in the Ukraine scheme, but he's definitely not going to get charged by this administration. I mean, Bill Barr refused to even open an investigation. So let's put that aside, although he could be charged by by a future administration, but that's also going to be politically fraught. I mean, I think the cleanest and we know that Rudy's being investigated by the SDNY for criminal charges. I think the most likely way he gets in trouble is if he was any part of the stuff that Parnas and Bruman have already been investigated for, which we just talked about, have already been indicted for, which is the funneling of money from Ukraine into American elections. Now, people say, how could Rudy wouldn't be that stupid? He wouldn't do that. But look, if he just told Parnas, 
look, here's how you want to structure this. Here's how you want to set this up. Here's how you want to get the money in. Then he's part of it as right, a conspirator. Conspiracy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a possibility. I mean, there's also talk that he's under investigation for this, this obscure statute called FARA, FARA, F-A-R-A, the Foreign Agency Agents Registration Act. And that is what that says is if you're representing foreign nationals or foreign countries, you have to register as a lobbyist with the U.S. government. And look, Rudy's a perfect reason why, because if Donald Trump, the president, is talking to you, we need to know if he's talking to a regular U.S. citizen or somebody who's representing the interests of a foreign country. There's a difference there. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is a, act issues with that, too, where you just can't go off yeah, your own private foreign policy on behalf of the government if you're a private citizen. Yeah, it's kind of the opposite. Yeah, the Logan Act is, is going out there to foreign countries and conduct, but, but the right. Logan Act has, like, never been used in no, our history. I, I think nobody's <laughs> ever gone to jail. Yeah. Um, the, the, the Foreign Agents Registration Act is tricky because it's an administrative event, it's a, and juries understandably don't love it. It's not like robbery or bribery even where you go, I, I get that. It's here. It's like, oh, he didn't fill out some paperwork. Right. Um, but DOJ has been using it more aggressively. They used it against Manafort. They convicted him of it, um, I think, or he pled guilty to it. And they also used it against Gregory Craig, who, who full circle, was one of Bill Clinton's lead lawyers in impeachment. Um, a few uh, a year or so, last year, he was indicted for Farah and tried for it, and he was acquitted. The jury found him not guilty. Um, although that was even a weirder case because it wasn't even fair. It was lying about whether he did the paperwork accurately. It was a mess of a case. But the point is, that's a tricky charge. And as a prosecutor, I would be reluctant to just bring one charge against the person for failing to register as a foreign agent. It's just a hard sell to a jury. So I, I think it's a coin toss whether Rudy gets indicted. I think it's 50-50, and, and uh, it will be one of the big questions of this upcoming year. I think if we had an, <clears throat> an honest attorney general, Rudy Giuliani would be yeah. in big trouble because he has yeah. taken on so many questionable foreign clients and some of the stuff right. that he's done overseas with, with Turkey and Ukraine and you know Russian oligarchs. And just he's really – He's really been, you know, traveling around in these shadowy underground circles that are just, uh, you know, not unbecoming, you know, and and I'll say this right. He's definitely going into gray areas and come close to a lot of lines and whether he stepped over, I guess DOJ knows better than we do. But yeah, he's he's tempting fate. Yes. Well, he he knows he can right now because he's never even if he did charge him or indict him or convict him. There's no way Donald Trump's letting him go to jail. He'd pardon him. Right. I mean, there's. Yeah, and, and Rudy would probably would, would want to go to trial and would right, fight it. Yeah, right. I mean, and, and, right, right. And he, yeah. he knows that he can run around and do whatever the hell he wants because he's got the backing of the president. But th- I guess that's until he doesn't. Uh, yeah, last exactly. question. Thank you for, yep. for hanging out with me today, Ellie. No problem. Yes. No, it's um, great. So some of my friends uh, are really pissed off about Bill Barr and want something to be done about mm-hmm. this guy. And I get it because he has mm-hmm. really created a lot of chaos with um, this administration and, and giving cover to Trump in ways that Jeff Sessions was unwilling to do. God bless him. I had my criticisms about Sessions, but at least he still had some ethics. Um, Bill Barr has none. And yeah. is there anything that can be done? I have friends that are, are involved in petitions to, to get the bar to the um, bar association to review yeah. his, his status. Like, is there anything that can be done with Bill Barr? 
Only a couple things, and they're both very, very long shots. So, but first of all, I agree. I, I think he's just been a, a, an absolutely horrible. I, w- I would say a terrible attorney general, but that suggests like he's not good at his job. It's worse than that because I think he's twisted the position. I think he has turned it into a purely political uh, operation. Not the entire DOJ. I mean, the vast majority of DOJ is still normal, good prosecutors doing their jobs. But I think he's turned the attorney general's position into president's personal counsel. Um, and I can detail it, but I have no faith in the guy. What can be done? There's really only a couple ways an attorney general could be taken out of office. The president can fire him. That's not that's not happening. I mean, right. Donald Trump is going to cling to this guy for all he's worth. If he didn't fire Jeff um, Sessions, he's not going to fire. Him. Oh, I mean, he's been he's been Donald Trump's dream attorney general. Yes. Um, so Trump's not going to get rid of him. Obviously, a person could resign, but I don't see any reason to think Bill Barr will, will resign. And yes, an attorney general can be impeached. But it's the same standard as as we've been talking about. You you would need a majority of the House, which maybe they could get, but then you need two thirds of Senate, the Senate to remove him, which will never happen. What about so no, review? I don't. What about the bar review that some people are are asking for? Yeah, I mean bar. What and, and we're talking bar with one R. Right. Yeah, <laughs> your, 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 yeah, your your bar associations, which which um, sort of govern attorneys in each state and federally can take away a license in a given state if they, but, but it's hard to do that. Um, and and it's a lengthy process. And even if he were to lose his license to practice in a certain state, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't mean he can't be attorney general. So it's a way to maybe ding him, but it's not a way to get him out of the attorney general's chair. Very frustrating. The founding fathers ever anticipated that the the level of corruption being so pervasive, you know, the guardrails assumed that, we would have virtuous governors here and they're yeah. just, they're just not at so many levels. And it's, and it's um, really testing. Uh, not, not only is Donald Trump on trial here, but I think our constitutional order is as well, which is why so many of us are so passionate, passionate about this and will continue to be. agree. Yep. Holy, holy. I, I agree. Yep. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> we will. Thank you, Tara. Attention. Um, be sure to check out Ellie. He has a special segment every weekend with Anna Cabrera called Cross Exam. What time is that? Is that on Sundays? Sundays, usually 5.30 p.m. We've been moving it around a little bit or doing multiples each Sunday because there's so much interest in, in this impeachment stuff. So uh, check my Twitter. I usually post the times on there, Ellie Honig. And, it, and your Twitter is at Ellie Honig? Yep, E L I E H O N I G. Perfect. I'm the only one. <laughs> that's, that's, that makes it easy to find. Uh, yeah. And I always tag Ellie as well. So follow him for that. <laughs> and you get to you can send him questions and maybe he'll read one of yours on CNN in Cross. Yes. Camp. Ellie. Thank All right. You so much, my friend. Thanks, Sarah. I love Ellie. He's just so much fun. And he's so smart. And I, I didn't know he went to Harvard. So he can tell me where to go and get a good good beer up there in Cambridge when I go. Big shout out to Ellie Honig. Thank you for joining me this week. Um, before I conclude my feel-good story of the week, it's, um, it's really about what's going on in Australia. These bushfires are still raging. Uh, My heart just breaks for the Australian people and all the poor animals, the wildlife, the poor little kangaroos and koalas. I mean, the pictures are heartbreaking. I have a heart for animals anyway. Anyone who listens to this knows I'm always talking about animal rescues and dog programs and cats. And um, I just, that's my heart. I grew up in a family of animal lovers and 
And um, so I found a, a couple charities and people always ask me, how can we help? How can we help? So I found a couple of charities that are very specific in their mission missions to help koala bears and wildlife. So I've donated to one uh, in particular and I've actually, um, their Instagram is 1300 K O A L Z 1300 koalas. Um, it's the Adelaide and Hills koala rescue. They have a GoFundMe, Adelaide Hills koala rescue. I'll post it on the, the Twitter page, but, um, they are, they're taking in um, injured koala bears and nursing them back to health, and they're doing amazing work. And you can follow what they're doing on Instagram. Again, that's 1300 K O A L Z, and they have a GoFundMe if you want to help them. Um, there's also a, um, a volunteer organization. If you knit or crochet, people are knitting nests and mittens for animal burn, burn victims, um, which I thought is such a great idea. And there is a woman who is uh, actually related to one of my hair and makeup folks at The View. And she is volunteering for this effort. And I have some of her things as well. She she crocheted this really beautiful cowl for me as I go up to the winter wonderland in Boston. Um, And her Instagram is Dello Reese, D-E-L-L-O-R-E-E-S-E. Um, she also has an Etsy shop. So if you're looking for really nice crocheted, um, gifts and, and, you know, neckwear and things, and she does a great job and she's dedicating, volunteering her time to help the koalas out there in Australia by knitting nests and mittens as part of this group. So check her out. If you like her stuff, order it, um, and, uh, let her know that I sent you. I just think, I just like to help small business owners and people trying to get, off the ground and who do good work and who have good hearts. So Dello Reese, D-E-L-L-O-R-E-E-S-E is the Etsy shop. She's also on Instagram now, so you can check her out and um, help her donate and help the little koalas. Now, some people also, oh, there's another um, koala rescue. It's uh, the website is www.akr.org.au. That's the Adelaide Koala Rescue akr.org.au they also are could use donations and are helping the koala bears and as far as helping the firemen um prayers go out to the fire service there um there was just a major crash where three american firemen who were over there helping out from california passed away in this crash horrible praying for their families um they're really just heroes we take it for granted what they do every day Um, but there are a couple of ways you can help donate to the firefighters over there in Australia as well. The NSW World Fire Service, you can donate to, um, uh, if you just Google them, NSW World Fire Service, it'll take you there. You can also donate to the, uh, County Fire Service in South Australia. That website is cfsfoundation.org.au. That's cfsfoundation.org.au. Um, you have the Queensland Fire and Rescue. That is giveit.org.au. Giveit, G-I-V-I-T.org.au. Um, there's also, to help some of the relief organizations, 
One that's local is the uh, St. Vincent Society. They're helping to feed families and people who have lost everything in the fires. And the money helps buy supplies for them. That is at donate.vinnies.org. Uh, that's for the St. Vin- Vincent Society. So those are some. I will post them on the Twitter page. Um, if you guys tweet at me and ask me again, if I forget, I will make sure I get that information to you. So if you're feeling in a giving spirit and want to help out the Aussies and the koala bears and the kangaroos, that's the way to do it. All right, that's it for this week's edition of Honestly Speaking. Be sure to follow me at Tara Setmayer on Twitter at Honestly underscore Tara is the podcast Twitter account and on Instagram at the Tara Setmayer. Uh, see you next week from Cambridge. <laughs>